Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Firemuth. For today's episode, we are celebrating the Corps' birthday by learning about the Corps' history. But before we get started, we want to know more about our guests. So tell us about yourself and a little bit about your job with the Corps. We'll start with John. This is John Lonquist. Golly, I was a kid that, that knew I wanted to be a historian in third grade. I didn't know quite what a historian did, but I like stories, and history seemed to be the, the closest thing I could get to it. So I've got a Ph.D. in history from Duke University. My specialty is history of technology. I've been a government historian for about 25 years. I've been with the, uh, the Corps of Engineers for about 20 years, and I've been uh, the chief for the last 13 so that's about me. And yeah, this is Jonah. Um, so I'm I'm pretty new. I'm a historian uh, in in John's office, and uh, I, I finished up my PhD uh, in 2018 at Georgia Tech. And I had studied water resources development projects in the southeast for my dissertation. And then I became a presidential management fellow and uh, had a lucky chance to to start working here. And primarily over the past few years, I worked on um, some disaster response histories as well as uh, some work on, on water resources. Thank you for those introductions. I am sure a lot of people didn't even know that an Office of History existed within the Corps of Engineers. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Office of History, like when it was established in the primary function? Sure. The office was established in the summer of 1943. President Roosevelt ordered uh, the Department of Defense, then, then the Department of War, to lay the groundwork for official histories of World War II, and our office was established to do that. Initially, the office was pretty much wholly consumed with writing uh, the official histories of World War II, those are what we call now the Green Books. But then, after 10 or 20 years, uh, those books were finished. The office moved more towards uh, documenting Cold War topics like engineers in Europe, engineers in the Middle East, um, and, and uh, changes to our civil works program. And then over the last 20 years since, since I've been chief, we've kind of focused on five primary areas. We have a publications program. We have um, eight books now underway, and those range anywhere from a history of American, uh, of Army engineers in the American Revolution to our modern Civil Works program. Uh, we have a robust oral history program. Um, we have about 3,000 interviews and do probably about 60 or 70 a year. We have a field history program. The goal there is for this office to help field activities, whether they be divisions or districts or labs or centers or whatever, try to record some of their own history. And when they write it up, we help them do that. Um, we have a research collection, and that's sort of archival stuff. We have about uh, 2,100 linear feet of uh, documents going back to the early 1800s, photographs going back to the 1830s, uh, maps going back to the 1760s, film and video. It is, a, it is just an absolutely tremendous uh, resource. You know, those, uh, those documents not only give us the grist to write history, but they give us the material that we use to tell stories, which, which engage, our, engage our audience. But then we also have an archivist who not only takes care of our collection, but she also goes out and helps uh, field activities uh, sort of sort through their material and figure out what to do with it. Uh, and then we have a, a wonderful artifact collection. We have about 7,500 artifacts that are stored at our facility. 
We have a very talented curator who takes care of those. Those artifacts go from anywhere from uh, Revolutionary War material to, to drones to artifacts that recently came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's kind of the things that we do or the things that we have, but I think maybe bottom line is, is our office tries to act as a translator. We try to make history interesting and engaging um, and make it easy for you say to the American public to understand who we are and what we do. That is fascinating. So just real quick, where are like the the archives or like the items that are brought back, say, from Afghanistan and those where are those stored or are they available for people to view? So for our for both our research collection and our and our artifact collection, those are stored at our facility at the Humphrey Engineer Center. And that's in Springfield, Virginia, actually it's Alexandria, Virginia, which is about 15 miles uh, southwest of Washington, D.C. And all the archival material is available for folks to look at. It's not digitized. Some of it is, but, but a lot of it is not. And the artifacts are available for folks to see by appointment. Very cool. So today, as Kat mentioned, we want to highlight the court's birthday, which is June 16th. And we just thought it would be great to do a brief overview of the Corps' history, uh, where we've been and where we're heading, as we are an agency that's been around for almost 250 years. Let's start at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about who established the Corps of Engineers and why? Sure. The, the Continental Congress uh, authorized the Army, and that would be, have been General George Washington, to hire a chief engineer and two assistants on the 16th of June, 1775. And uh, Colonel Richard Gridley of Massachusetts was Washington's first uh, chief engineer. But during the Revolutionary War, trained American engineers were scarce. So beginning in 1776, French military engineers began arriving in what was to become the United States. And in late 1777, Congress appointed a French military engineer, Louis Duportail, uh, to be chief engineer. And following the French model, Duportail wanted to create a separate corps of engineers within the Army, and that would have been a distinct engineer branch that would include trained engineer troops called sappers and miners. That took a while to do, and in, uh, in March of 1779, Congress formally organized engineer troops of the Continental Army into, into, into separate and distinct units, and then in 1781, they activated the first uh, troop units. However, at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, most of the Army, along with the Corps of Engineers, was disbanded. That did not last long, at least for the Corps of Engineers. In 1794, uh, Congress created a uniform Corps of Artillerists and Engineers, the idea being that those two technical specialties were the most technical and needed the most training. Uh, and then in 1802, uh, President Thomas Jefferson created a separate Corps of Engineers, and he also created the Military Academy at West Point, which was for the next 35 years the nation's only engineering school. So that's a little bit about the history and the, uh, the origins of the Corps of Engineers. That is really interesting. So since we have been around for 250 years, um, what were some of the more famous and well-known projects that the Corps has built? Hmm. Let's see. I think some of those, some of the projects that we built were well known at the time. 
but others were precedent-setting, and those, those precedent only emerged much later. So, for example, in April of 1824, uh, Congress passed the General Survey Act authorizing the President to use Army engineers to survey roads or canals with commercial or military importance. And then several weeks later, Congress appropriated $75,000 for the Corps of Engineers to remove obstructions from the Ohio and the, and the Mississippi rivers and then to remove sandbars from the Ohio. And that was uh, the Corps of Engineers' first civil works appropriation and paved the way for the program that continues to this day. Another notable program, uh, at least that's, that's of perhaps national significance, but certainly great significance to us here in the D.C. area, was in, in 1850, Congress turned to the Corps of Engineers to devise a water system to bring a plentiful supply of clean drinking water into the federal city. And today, the Washington Aqueduct still supplies water to the city. Uh, but soon thereafter, Congress asked the Corps of Engineers to supervise the expansion of the Capitol in the 1850s, then the Capitol Dome, and then the reclamation of much of the Washington waterfront, the construction of famous memorials like the Lincoln Memorial, Memorial Bridge, the and the completion of the Washington Monument. So I'd suggest that Army engineers had more to develop the historic downtown heart of Washington, D.C. than any other federal entity. And then perhaps one construction project that wasn't, and that is that uh, some folks think that the Corps of Engineers built the Panama Canal. It was surely an engineering milestone, but we didn't build it. The canal was built by the Isthmian Canal Commission, but much of the commission's leadership, including its superintendent, George Goethals, and section chiefs, David Gayard and William Seibert, were Corps of Engineer employees, and they were detailed to the commission. But most importantly, the technology and the management procedures that those men used in Panama have been developed on American rivers by the Corps of Engineers. Another big project and long-running long project is the Mississippi Rivers and Tributaries Project, authorized in 1828. It is still a building that's coming up on a century of managing the river as a comprehensive flood control and navigation system. And then we've got the, the Manhattan Project, uh, the largest R&D project in American history, although the, the atomic bomb remains controversial with its impact and legacy. At the time, the project that, that created that bomb was considered absolutely essential to American security. And then I would say one other project is, is the Missile and Space Program in the 1960s. Um, in the 1950s, the Air Force was racing to develop ICBMs, and they turned to the Corps of Engineers to build launch facilities and test facilities. And then in the late 50s and the early 60s, we built uh, nearly 100 or 1,100 uh, ICBM silos. NASA also turned to the Corps of Engineers to build the facilities for the American Space Program. So Kennedy Launch Complex was built by the Corps of Engineers. We established the Canaveral Engineer District to do it. And the Apollo uh, flight to the moon in 69 left from Launch Complex 39, which was uh, built by the Corps of Engineers and was the uh, uh, designated by the American Society of Civil Engineers as, as the outstanding project of that year. It just amazes me the amount of history that you all know and it just shows that you've done many many interviews and uh, a lot of research throughout the years 
speaking of that, um, as historians, you've probably had the opportunity to interview a lot of core leaders. And I'm curious as to who has been the most interesting person to interview and why. Hmm. That's a tough one. I mean, that's, that's kind of like asking a parent, which of your children do you like best? You know, we interview a lot of people. And when we do those interviews, we try to interview a diverse skill set of folks. So we interview the, the project managers and the senior leaders and the boat captains and everybody in between. So I'll give you a couple of my favorites. We went up to New York City in the wake of September 11th and we interviewed one of the boat captains. The Corps' boat terminal at Cave and Point looks across uh, New York Harbor to the Statue of Liberty. So on the morning of 9-11, it became clear that there were a lot of people congregating on the south end of Manhattan that needed to be evacuated, and so uh, the Corps sent its boats over to, to remove those folks. And uh, afterwards, I talked to one of the masters of, of one of those vessels, and I asked her what it was like being a woman in a predominantly maritime environment, and she responded, she said, you know, all of my boat crewmen are married, so they all know how to take orders from women. And I thought that was a pretty good point. I also get to talk to to commanders, and it's interesting to hear their perspective, to, to hear their insight to how they organize their thoughts. And also to, I've been doing this now since 2008, and to listen to the priorities of different commanders over the years is an interesting evolutionary process. Yeah, so through those interviews, like what you just touched on with, how have you seen that evolution change through the core, like over the years through your interviews? I think a lot of it is is what we're working on this year or this decade. So, so when I first came to the office, we were consumed with September 11th and debris removal and operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then then we had Katrina. Uh, then we had reform and reorganization, so I've seen first regionalization people were talking about in the 90s, and then uh, we had uh, USACE 2012, and then we had civil works transformation, and now we're talking about um, revolutionizing USACE. So it is various takes on a similar theme, how we get a large organization to be better each and every day. And earlier you mentioned R&D, and for the audience that doesn't know what R&D is, um, it's research and development. You know, a lot of the projects that the Corps builds um, are based on sound science and data. How did the Corps' research and development branch or arm uh, come to be established and why? The Corps established the Waterways Experiment Station in 1929, and there it was to explore the hydrology of primarily the Mississippi River, but those results uh, were applicable to waterways all over the nation. So the idea being that the Corps' civil works projects need to be based on sound science, and actually that really goes back to the Humphrey Abbott Report of 1861 on the hydrology of the Mississippi. The Corps was looking very, very diligently for a sound technological and scientific uh, basis for the behavior of that large and very important waterway. So 
over the years, the, the core's R&D infrastructure has increased. We now have have multiple labs doing cutting-edge research and everything from uh, construction engineer, engineering to cold regions engineering. We have more sophisticated tools to let us better predict and better speculate on what the outcome of our engineering projects are going to be. So we did hear that you are working on a new publication about the history of the core. So can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. So we have what we call a survey history. Um, it is, um, uh, the current edition is, is entitled uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, colon, A History. And the idea is, is it's a large format publication, so that one's about 8, eight by 12, and it's got a narrative that explains what we do by mission area, but it's also got photographs, uh, because so much of what we do is, is technological. So in many cases, if we're describing a sheet pile cofferdam, uh, a picture is better than a thousand words. The new history will be an update. The last volume that we have was done in uh, 2008, so it will bring us up to date. Our existing publication is a two-color publication, so basically black and white. Uh, the new publication will, will be four-color throughout, which will give it a decidedly new look. And it will bring us up to date and, and touch on things like the drawdown in, in Iraq, perhaps the drawdown in Afghanistan, Hurricane Sandy, and a number of other uh, aspects that need to be brought up to date. That sounds like a really cool publication. Um, as a planner myself, I know we're always looking for the picture is worth a thousand words sometimes. So where would someone find this publication or when will it be made available? Well, when is always a $64 question. Um, it, it will be available in the next uh, six or eight months. And when it does become available, you can get a hard copy uh, through the USAID Publications Depot but also the digital copy will be available on the USA's digital library, and all of the pictures for the publication will be available on the library as well. And it will also be available via uh, e-reader format, so you can bring it up on your Kindle or your iPhone or your Samsung Galaxy or whatever else you use. Very cool. I know that our team will be looking for that because we always like to learn more about the core's history. We've been talking a lot about the history of the Corps. We're curious to know um, from your seat within the Corps of Engineers, where do you see the Corps going in the future? I fulfill it seeing much the same role, but in new ways. We are entering, or we are in, an era of increasing complexity, both that's in environmental complexity, political complexity, technological complexity, and I see that the Corps of Engineers has to be able to offer solutions within those increasingly complex realms. We're also in an era of transformation, i.e. That, that we're in a fierce battle for talent. We need to be able to attract the best and the brightest. And I think to do that, we need to adapt organizationally both what we do and how we do it. And I think one of the things that we've seen with this pandemic is that we can work virtually and then how we are going to do that, I think, is going to be one of the real important questions in the months and years going forward. Yeah, I think with that complexity and I think everything with the, how every agency is doing this transformation, how do you feel at the core should be looking at how do we communicate that with citizens like that do not know about us to start with? And now that we're adding this extra layer of complexity, how would you explain the core to them? Um, so this is Jonah. I'll, I'll... I'll take that one. You know, I think the, the current vision statement uh, is pretty good. Engineering 
solutions uh, for our nation's toughest challenges that you started this off with. And, um, you know, I think it's good because it is so broad. I think, you know, coming at it from a historic perspective, the Corps of Engineers is unique because it is a military command uh, with a very specialized civilian public works mission. And if you go back to uh, Europe of the 18th century, uh, military engineers were building roads and canals in England, France, and the Netherlands. Uh, and today, the U.S. is one of a very few countries, if not the only country, uh, where that role for the Army has been retained uh, in the modern era. And so I think that that's really because there's this central tension uh, in American history about the role of the federal government and what it should do and what should be left to states and, and private enterprise. If you go back to the beginning of the, the country, the early republic, there was a need uh, for really key national infrastructure, critical infrastructure, like a national road or iconic civic buildings for harbors, coastal fortifications. And the government at, at that time in the early uh, 19th century was quite small. So the Corps really stepped up with, with expertise and, and the organization to handle those kinds of projects. And so I think most of our history is really about being in that place where there was a national need, but, but a lot of reluctance on the part of Congress and the President to create new federal agencies to fill that need. So we had the capability. Uh, and that's how the Corps has been successful and continues to be. So if you, you kind of go fast forward to more modern times, Really, the, the, the modern agency, which has an annual budget that's basically split between military programs and civil works fairly equally, though that changes from time to time, that dates back to the immediate post-World War II period and America's role in the world as a superpower. So to go right up to the present, I think you, know, you can see how the Corps really steps up to that place of national need with our response to COVID-19 this past year. So a year ago, we, we really thought there would be a need for, for tens of thousands of beds at the peak of the pandemic. You know, normally the Department of Health and Human Services would be the lead for a public health uh, disaster like COVID. But the nation really needed a builder that could respond rapidly. And again, we uniquely had that capability on a national level. So. General Semonite, uh, who was the chief of engineers at the time, only had to make that leap and offer, uh, you know, a clear set of solutions to the problem of, of beds. And so that, that is an example that's not so dissimilar from how we got many of our other responsibilities in the past. And I think going forward, uh, we will continue to be the ones that step up in that place. Thank you for that. So we're nearing the end of our time together, and we always like to go back out to our guests and see if they have any final thoughts or uh, words of advice for our audience. So, John, we'll start with you. Any final thoughts from you? From my lane, history is and will continue to be important, but there's only so many things, so many topics our small staff here can cover. So I think if, if I could ask your listeners within the Corps of Engineers, it's, hey, if you see something that is new or novel or important, please reach out to us and let us know. We can't, from our position and headquarters, we try to cover down across the enterprise, but, but that's a tough thing. And to the same extent, if there are 
if they're old historical materials at your organization, and these are papers or photographs or films or video or whatever, please contact us and we'll help you uh, figure out how to sort through that material. And Jonah, anything from you? I guess the thing I'd want to add is that, you know, I've, I've worked on a couple projects the past few years really about uh, disaster response, and I'm just uh, amazed at the, the volunteer spirit of this agency. I'm amazed at people that go and deploy again and again to different emergency operations. Uh, it's just incredible that the different areas of expertise and, and the willingness of the Corps of Engineers to show up and, and you know, take some of their responsibilities and put them aside for a moment and then do that uh, emergency response and come back and pick up everything and, and we keep keep it all going. And uh, so it's just, it's just been a really uh, a privilege to talk with people who, who have that sense of uh, service. Thank you, John and Jonah, for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. For our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together. Thank you.